If you want to make your own podcast but feel intimidated by the tech barriers, then you might need Alitu. Alitu is a web app that lets you create and publish great sounding podcast episodes. It takes care of the complicated stuff, leaving you free to concentrate on what you do best, talking about your passion. Alitu, the podcast maker app, find it at alitu.com. That's A-L-I-T-U dot com. What could your school do with $25,000? Hawaii Public School teachers apply for the Education Innovation Grant from Farmers Insurance Hawaii and the Public Schools of Hawaii Foundation to make your big idea a reality. The Education Innovation Grant fosters unique, innovative learning experiences benefiting teachers, students, and the greater community. The deadline to apply is May 30th. One Oahu winner and one neighbor island winner will be announced in October. To apply, go to FarmersHawaii.com slash Education Innovation. Imagine a place where students use media, creativity, communication, and critical thinking to make stories come to life. A place where authentic audiences are enlightened by the kids who live there. Hawk Media Productions at Kealakehe Intermediate School, located in Kona, Hawaii, is an example of that place where students strive daily for the summit. From school broadcasts, hikino stories, community spotlights, and now podcasts, Hawk Media Productions hopes to inspire other schools to get involved in meaningful learning in the community and the world. Believe it or not, all schools have the students, teachers, and community partners to be the spark for what school could be in Hawaii. Hey everyone, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. I'm your host, Josh Rapoon. This is another in our series we call On the Road with What School Could Be. We are recording at the Entrepreneur Sandbox, an innovation space in Honolulu, managed by Box Jelly Coworking. Today I will be talking with Wasfia Nazreen, the only woman to hold the simultaneous titles of National Geographic Explorer and Adventurer. Although she is known for being the first Bangladeshi in the world to climb the seven summits, which are the highest mountains on every continent, her passion has always been driven by causes close to her heart. She has won numerous national and global awards for her activism and commitment to empowering women through the field of adventure. She was named by Outside Magazine as one of 40 women in the last 40 years who have advanced and challenged the outdoor world through their leadership, innovation, and athletic feats, and by Men's Journal as one of the 25 most adventurous women of the past 25 years. She is the founder of Osel Foundation, which empowers marginalized girls from Bangladesh through the outdoors. Currently, she is hard at work in California, producing a new TV series about her life as a climber, and much more. Here now is part one of my conversation with Wasfia Nazreen. So, Wasfia, we have this format that I call 10 questions mm-hmm. for. So today it's going to be 10 questions for you. Um, and so we're going to jump right into question number one. And again, these questions are drawn from your biographic material that I worked through. Um, so I'm super excited for the opportunity to work through these with you. 
So question number one, um, in a short 13-minute National Geographic film about your journey, you state that you needed to set yourself free and that no one could do that except yourself. Mm. So for our radio audience, set the context of that statement. What brought you to that point in your life? What led up to that moment, that revelation, those words that you spoke? Um, early in my life, I had to go through a lot of obstacles. Uh, so up to the age of seven, I had a wonderful life, I had a great family. And then when I was about, you know, seven to 11, things started to fall down between my parents. And literally, I woke up one morning to know that my mom had left the home. And then it's a really long story. But, um, you know, over the course of time, I was basically left, um, you know, none of, in my culture, a, a woman is taken as a burden, right? A girl. Um, and so all of a sudden I had to fetch for, you know, figure out housing, figure out education or what was going to happen to me. And I realized, and by this time I was shifted off to an, another aunt's place in a different city. So this is, around 11, 12. <laughs> and so at that time, I realized how much of a burden I was becoming to everyone. And I realized that the only way I could, you know, run away from that situation was to educate myself. Because if I had education, then I would be independent. And um, so when I said to set myself free, it was more on the ground of self-actualization and that was very important for me like i don't know how much the audience knows but in south asia a girl's decision is always made by other people we're not made to we were never asked questions you know we have this whole culture of aunties who fix your marriages even when you're like a kid you know and they're telling you what to do so critical thinking wasn't part of growing up and it still isn't in some parts of the country, not just in Bangladesh, in all over South Asia. And so I wanted to be able to make my own decisions. And I come from a family where my most of my mother's side, like my aunts, were all married off at, when they were teenagers. My mom was married off when she was 17, you know. So I wanted to break that cycle. And I wanted to, and I knew that if I remained in that situation, I remained in Bangladesh, um, there wasn't probably gonna be situations that would be according to my wishes so my way of setting myself was to not leave Bangladesh but leave Bangladesh at that time to educate myself so I told my aunt to put me in an English medium school so traditionally we study in Bengali medium school which is our native language so English medium is more expensive so she put me in an English medium to strategize that when I came of age to go to college and universities, I could apply abroad and just leave, you know. And that's what I actually did. I uh, applied all over the world in different countries. And then one college in the U.S. gave me 100% scholarship. It was a women's college. And I was, and, you know, financing was the major uh, issue at that time. So I just called up one of my uncle who was living at that time in U.K. And I borrowed enough money to buy the ticket and just some pocket money. And I said adios and I left at the mm. age of 18. So what was it like <laughs> when you started to realize that the freedom was yours to be had? Like what do you, re do you recall when 
you started to wake up to the idea that you were free to make your decisions in the way that you wanted to make it. Like, I know it's hard to remember exact moments like that, but what was that like? I think just that whole divorce was a great learning for me because I, I saw from my mother's side and my father's side. And I didn't, because my mother was super talented. She was like back in the 70s, she was a world music jockey. She was a yoga teacher. She had wow. all this. She was a musician and her talents were cut short. And I think even though, you know, I was abandoned, it made me reflect because I wasn't a rebel before all this happened. Mm-hmm. You know, that situation gave me a deep, deep, I mean, it's difficult at that time, especially when you're at that age, you know, before you've actually gotten your period or, you know, like that age is so sensitive for a girl. And I had no parents at that time, I think. But in the long run, when I look back, if my mom hadn't left, I would never become who I am today, you know? Mm. So I have a lot of gratitude for everything that happened at that time because it made me reflect that I have this freedom today because of everything mm. that she did, the way she did, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. My my daughter is uh, lives in California. Mm. Her name is Emma. Um, she's in her first year as a kindergarten teacher. So it's oh, pretty wow. awesome for me as a yeah. former educator to have my child decide to become a teacher. Mm. Um, but Emma and I, over the many years that we grew up together, um, used to talk about silver linings mm. and that we always tried really hard to identify silver linings. If mm. something was going off the rails, we would start to think mm. about like, what's the silver lining of this? And it sounds like what happened with your mom that you realized that there was a silver lining despite mm. how painful that was. Yes. I mean, it's not, I'm not saying that what she or how she did it was right. Yeah. Um, but I, when I go back to Bangladesh and when I grew up, I see what my fellow classmates became, you know, and they're just living like I have gone because of those experiences. I have gone through this epic journey of finding myself, mm-hmm. which may we know we don't know what may have happened. But I'm just saying that. So when I actually many years later, because I haven't I hadn't talked to my mom for almost 17 years till I found her in another city and then this was kind of around before I had climbed Everest and so when I reached the summit she was the first person I called to thank her when I reached the top of the world she didn't pick up because it was too early in the morning (laughs) (laughs) but you know I had a profound gratitude even towards my dad you know there are many their actions weren't right I'm not justifying that their actions were Mm. right but I'm just saying that they're still my two biggest teachers in Mm. life because um, you know, their actions set off all these series of events and consequences. And, you know, I became, somehow I also became, like I studied psychology, which was my mom's profession. I became a yogini, you know, like all these things that I pursued on my own has connect spiritual connections with her. So, and there are many things that my father exposed to me during my early childhood, for example, you know, he was working in shipping. I grew up in, in the Bay of Bengal right near uh, Sundarbans, which is the largest mangrove forest where the Bengal tigers are. I was like everything with exploration and travel. My father was, you know, the one who put that seed in me. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think as a human, we tend to always focus on if there's like 10 things nine things that are good and one thing that's bad we focus on the bad thing and it's we you know we don't always remember the 
from the eyes of gratitude and right and it's not always yep. easy i'm not saying yeah. i'm always in that state but when yeah. i'm in deep reflection and coming from a place of wisdom um right okay so that's perfect segue to question number two yeah so in the same national geographic film you speak about mindfulness and meditation this might seem awkward, but I want to talk about these two concepts in the context of our modern schooling systems, which have little time for either of those. Right. Um, so my, my worry, Osvia, is that schools trying to be innovative are developing mindfulness programs but are, and, and even yoga meditation mm-hmm. programs, but are merely putting a bandage over more systemic issues related to competition and testing anxiety and siloed learning um, and all the stresses that go with that. So the, the same might be said about mindfulness and meditation in the modern workplace. You know, another bandage on top of something that we don't want to address, which is what those mm. environments are really like. So what are your thoughts about that? I have a lot to say on that note because I think I even um, I think it's not just schooling system; it's the entire culture of how, from externally, how we measure success in life. Right? We we are taught to set certain goals. Like people think that my summits were the goals, right? And when I made it to the summit, that was that was my achievement. I don't see my achievement that way. You know, I see my achievements internally. How, what were the mountains I had to climb to reach that point, if that makes sense? So I think, um, you know, meditation, mindfulness, yoga, like I think the children of now should be taught, uh, inner values and that, that should be culture, like schooling should be not just an institution. It's in at home, what your parents are teaching you. And if that's missing, then no matter what we achieve externally in terms of, you know, the goal-oriented education system, there's a vacuum that remains within us. And that's why, so, um, if that makes sense. And um, I don't necessarily see it as a bandage, uh, the way you're seeing it, because I think there are so many studies, because these are all, sci- there's been a lot of scientific research on what, what mindfulness does to your, you know, whether in workplace, the corporates, you know, are adopting uh, mindfulness programs. It There is direct connection and correlation between how a look inside and, you know, all these journeys inside can actually benefit your external, um, what's the word, um, you know your skill sets and your clarity of and you know i i i work in you know a very tiring and fast paced industry in, in hollywood now and i see like people are just lost no matter what fame they have achieved how much money they make they're just there's just such a lack in their inside mm-hmm. and speaking of children they would if children were taught mindfulness at home and it was part of part or in school there wouldn't be any more wars in the future and there wouldn't be any gun violence and things that, you know, all these other issues that we're dealing with. Um, there are prisons who are now adopting programs, you know, I don't know if you've seen that. Like, For sure. Yeah, and yeah. what it does, because we, it's it's just a, another skill set that teaches you that, hey, there are going to be external events happening all the time around you, but how we deal with it 
is up to us and how we react to it is up to us and it's it's it it does add a lot to if that yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. so so it's not that i that i believe that right. it's a bandage it's yeah. just that i have this worry right that it's being treated as a bandage but here's my hope and right. I, and so in a previous episode that i did with an elementary school teacher mm-hmm. here in in honolulu remarkable 30 year educator mm. who's implementing mindfulness and even yoga to begin mm. every day mm. and it's been spreading across her campus now because the other teachers are starting to figure out mm. that this really has a lot of benefits and my hope is that that kind of a shift actually will propel a shift in culture at the school away from competition and away from the factory model of schooling and mm. that it will open up education for the kids to be more individualistic and more of these epic adventure journeys that right. they can go on. Um, on that note, I do want to add that I know a lot of yoga teachers who are not looking internally, you know, like there is a, and I, you know, coming from a very traditional yogic, you know, tradition and I practice the way yoga has been marketed in the U.S. And it's great, but, you know, people, even in the East, I see a lot of yoga teachers these days in the modern world. It's just a physical exercise for them. You know, it's not an internal journey. So I think it has to be a balance with meditation because our mind is so powerful. Like if we don't look inside, no matter what we do on the outside, it doesn't, you know, Mm. it has to be connected if that makes sense. And then the other point was, sorry, you said. um, That it might change culture in in a school, that the process itself. Yeah. Will have an impact on school culture. Yeah. And I, it is having a huge impact uh, in many, like I think, sim- several Western countries. And also this connection with nature, especially in this modern world, because we are getting so caught up in buildings and, you know, we don't, we, lo- we lost that touch with just Mother Earth. And that's very important to harness at the same time. And yeah. when you go to nature, you automatically heal you know, and you learn so much in my life. When I look back, you know, I have college degrees and I have done a lot of degrees, but a lot of the main lessons in life actually came from journeys mm-hmm. with nature. Right. Um, right. So speaking <laughs> of perfect segue to question yeah. number three. So your quest to climb the seven mountains, which was a process designed as set yourself free, as we've talked about, among many other things, required that you work collaboratively with a lot of people. In the short film that I watched that I referenced earlier, you talk about um, in the moment, sometimes split second decision making and critical thinking, Mm. which has to be part of the culture of any climbing endeavor or adventure, right? So what I want to talk about is your development as a thinker, as a decision maker, like we, we all have minds and hearts. Like how do yours work together? Mm. And how have you watched yourself almost from above looking down on mm-hmm. yourself develop as a thinker as you climbed the summits and then did all the other things that you've done in your life? Um, and I think this applies outside the seven summits too, just in For general sure. in life, because being in the mountains, like you'll see, world-class athletes, super powerful, go to high altitude and lose their shit, if I may say. And then just like, you know, not being able to do with high altitude because in when you go to higher altitude, 
your brain is functioning in a completely different setting, in lower oxygen, and all kinds of things come up. And that's what I mean about having, and your ego takes over, right? And I've seen so many people over the years lose sight of their, even like just because we die, like people die out there because they're so goal oriented and it's like summit, summit. And so they're not in touch with what's happening, even they're, even there's storms coming and it's a no zone for you to go to the summit. And I've been in situations where the summit was only a few hundred meters and I had to come down to save someone's life. And I think, um, and I'm not saying that I was always like that, but having those experiences and seeing how people have lost themselves driven by ego. And it, again, this kind of comes back to, you know, the mind training and, um, wisdom and clarity that arises from training in meditation is like you have to be able to hold that space and this start the training starts even before you go to the mountain because in higher altitude you're literally just on survival mode right and meditation isn't in the cold the you know it's it doesn't come unless it's like a high lama coming from you know tibet or somewhere i haven't reached that level but i I have had climbing partners in life where that that person would have put me and the rest of the team's life in uh, just because he wanted to reach to the summit. And we know and, uh, you know, I guess women, as women, we're more intuitive <laughs> and more connected. And so all in all, um, it's been a great lesson, a humbling process because I also have we're human. We all have ego. And, you know, so but being able to watch it watch that ego and um, being able to, you know, function from a place of wisdom Mm -hmm. is the key. Mm -hmm. And I think what I'm, what I'm picking up from you is that, um, and I'm going to contextualize this in terms of education, Mm -hmm. where education is going. So when you talk about problem-based learning, project-based learning, challenge-based learning, inquiry, critical uh, thinking, critical thinking, all of that kind of stuff. I think a lot of the conversation is around, well, they'll gain these critical thinking skills, these decision-making skills while they're doing the project. But what I'm hearing from you is before you climb the mountain, you have to do training. Yeah. And so we have to train kids to think critically and make these kinds of decisions Sometimes even before we put them into those kinds of environments Environments, where they're collaborating with other people and where the oxygen gets a little Mm. thin because the pressure Mm. is kind of on. Does it feel like that? Yeah. And like, for example, the seven summits was a four year long journey because of the first five of the mountains I had climbed in one and a half years, less than one and a half years. And these are really time like Everest itself was two and a half months. And so but I was going back to back to back to back doing all this. And then I had a frostbite case and I was just, I had seven surgeries and it was a long draining nine months of recovery. And I, when I went back to my spiritual teachers, all they said was you were going too fast, you know? So indirectly telling me that you're not learning from this experience, you're not reflecting. So during those nine months, it was a deep, profound, and which I was, I was just chasing. I was like, oh, I got to finish this. I got to finish this. And so and then fundraising was a huge issue from Bangladesh for me. Like it's really expensive. So it took me four, four years to finish. But in between and even before the seven summits, even after the seven, I had to go through a lot of training. And it's not like, oh, I've just done this training and it's over. Our entire life is, I. that's how I see it, a school of learning, right? We mm-hmm. 
we learn till our last breath. And so it's not, oh, just because I've done the seven summits or some other mountains in the Himalayas, I'm not, it's not always going to be like, oh, I can still go up. And there might be time in our lives when, and a lot of mountaineers actually deal with it. Like they have, the, it's a degeneration disease when they they can't go above 4,000 meters. There's actually a saying that climbers become dumb and dumber as you go more uh, wow. <laughs> into higher altitude because you're losing memory yeah. and brain cells at a rate faster than the body mm-hmm. can reproduce. Anyway, but that's another topic. But what I was, if if that makes sense, like, yeah, yeah totally. it's, it's an ongoing training before, after, like each of my expeditions. And even when, because now I take, you know, people onto na- not that extreme conditions, but I take them, I've led many journeys to Everest Base Camp that is a lot for this. That's like a lifetime achievement for many people, right? But when I, when I create those, you know, I train them for almost eight months before we actually go because, mm-hmm. um, and it's not just high altitude training. It's just setting the mind, the intention. And I think motivation and intention, setting that right is key for mm-hmm. with anything in life. Like, why are you doing this? Mm-hmm. If you want to be an artist, why are you becoming, you know, because right. it's very easy to get derailed Mm. Um, yeah. So I think I think what I would want to do is have you back for another episode of this <laughs> podcast where we can talk just specifically about learning from mistakes and from failure. Right. And in in your context, climbing the seven summits, right. mistakes that can be, you know, life threatening. Mm-hmm. Um, but that we'll have to set right. aside for a second. We're going to move on to question number four, which uh-huh. is actually a perfect segue as well. So, um, Wasfia, I've always been fascinated by Sherpas. Mm-hmm. And when I taught at an all-girls school, La Pietra Hawaii School mm. for Girls here for eight years, I started to think about myself not as a teacher but as a Sherpa. Um, and so it was really cool to have this opportunity to mm. talk to you about this today. Um, given our radio audience is likely made up of educators and education leaders, I want to explore the idea of, the, of modern teachers transforming themselves away from being that sage on the stage who's just delivering information to the kids and then testing them on it, to being a Sherpa, meaning, you know, kids are all climbing great mountains in one way or another. What in your experiences can you share about making that transition from teacher in that more modern sense to climbing guide to Sherpa for kids Mm. as they move forward on their learning journeys? I guess I'm also looking like because in watching that film mm-hmm. and talking about your your guides mm-hmm. and very special relationships with them and you lost one um, and all of that, that I, mm. I was very moved by that. And just thinking about how you make a transformation into being that kind of guide mm. for another individual or, or groups of individuals. So before I start, I do want to make, because this has been a subject of controversy in the, especially yeah. in the Himalayan world, is like referring to someone as a Sherpa. Mm. And Sherpa people don't necessarily take it respectfully because they haven't been credited. Even Tenzing Norge, who was the first person to lead Sir Edmund Hillary to the top, even his grandchildren are still fighting for credit. Mm. And he hasn't, so it's a, it's a little sensitive issue. And I actually started out as an activist and a nonprofit who, uh, NGO worker for Sherpa people and Tibetan people's rights before I became a climber. Mm. And I have a very close relationship with them because 
you know, I worked with His Holiness the Dalai Lama and um, the, the Tibetan people and the refugees. So Sherpa people actually originally came from Tibet. Mm. Sherpa means coming from the East. And so their language, their culture, their spirituality is all very Tibetan. And so because I spoke Tibetan and I learned, un- understood the same culture and because I was work, working in way for someone who to in their eyes is their god or the buddha living buddha i have a lot of privilege and i've been welcomed in their life but i know what you're saying and i think um having said that you know there's an ongoing effort still and actually there's a really nice documentary called sherpa that people can watch and i actually never went to a climbing school which many many people go to become a climber i was taught you know, hands-on by very um, legendary Sherpa people. Uh, some of them have passed on. Um, and I lived in an altitude of 5,000 to 6,000 meters for work. And so I got very lucky. Back on those times, I wasn't trying to be a mountaineer. It's just something that, you know, there are no bars up there. So over the weekend, you just go climb a mountain. You know, that's mm. how I... And I was very lucky to start my career in the Himalayas, where most climbers start their career in other mountain ranges, Himalaya is their end, you know, the the higher mountains are kind of their end game, right? So um, this was in my early 20s, mid-20s, um, and I learned a lot of wisdom from them. And I think... To answer your question, I think... Um, like, you know, you saw the film and Nima's daughters are now uh, yeah. part of my foundation and I have a very close relationship with them. But when Nima had passed, and if I can just share the story to answer your question is, I, I, you know, I was at a split place and I, in my life too, I overcompensate too much coming from a place of, you know, if that makes sense, when I, I took care of my dad later on when he had a heart attack and for other people's sorrow and mistake, and that's kind of my personality. But when Nima passed, I really had to see, wait, look back and see, like, I don't want to be the person that his wife and his children depend on all the time. They need to be self-sufficient. Mm. So what we did was, you know, along with several other friends, we made her... um uh, his wife, uh, Tukpa place, which is, you know, noodles, uh, like Momo place. And for, even for her who had just moved from the Everest region to Kathmandu, the city, being able to deal with that and being, because it's a completely different environment was a huge mountain that she had to climb. She was illiterate, but we, we gave the rent money and, you know, to just initially just helped her financially, but she had to independently work on her own and you know and then uh the first daughter was taken by another school and initially i supported but also not making it very clear that you know like at some point you need to be the one to learn from this experience and stand up on your own and look at this now in 2020 they're flourishing Mm. um you know I, i still provide them with several like medical help and you know whatever they need but they had to learn because in our culture it's very uh, common to just depend on someone else if you give too much, mm-hmm. um, if that makes sense. So what I'm saying is like, I think... Your reservation is ending soon. Uh, I think it's uh, important for educators to... And this is what something I practice in my foundation too, is like the girls had me as a role model, but I can't always be the the role model. You know, you, you should, they need to find 
people from their own community that they can look up to as role models and they can they need to see themselves as role models you know if that makes sense it's yeah. just not just girls but you know young adults or young youth in general has to find that uh, strength within themselves mm. yeah I'm, and not put us on a pedestal if that yes yeah. for sure for sure and it's just it's like it's super interesting to me to make the shift to becoming someone who's like what are the subtleties of being a guide mm. rather than somebody who does it or just you know tells you what to do right um, but but helps you stays with you along the journey right to help guide you like there's there's a there's a fountain of knowledge that's mm. there but you don't just drop it on somebody right you have to be with them as they go along right and that's the part that i'm starting to focus on now mm. um and looking at education redesign is the role of the teacher in that mm. case as becoming more of a guide in that way mm. even in my life i've looked up to guides as the like whether it's a spiritual guide or a mountain guide or, you know, yeah. you put everything like this guide is going to solve things for you, right? right. Uh, so you don't really, if you're performing from that angle as a guide, you're not actually teaching or passing on your information. You're just creating a codependent situation right. where the, that person isn't growing. And I see this even when I take, you know, very upscale LA crowd. They're just so, they think that you're going to figure it out for them. Right. Even... Yeah, older yeah. people. Mm -hmm. um, so, I, yeah, totally. In some ways, it's more about holding back right. from what you want to say right. and allowing the person to move forward with the adventure. And allowing that space for them to right. yeah. grow. Okay, so we're going to move on to question number five. So we are individually and together on a series of journeys. Mm-hmm. And yours was to climb a series of epic peaks, among many things. Um, my current journey is to support education, innovation in Hawaii. So what do you do? And by the way, I'm, I'm referencing a moment in the film where I saw you writing in a journal. There's this really cool shot mm. where you're sitting in a really cool mm -hmm. space and you're writing. Um, so what do you do specifically to document your thoughts, your feelings, your observations and insights along your path day to day, hour mm. to hour. Um, what thoughts can you share about with educators about documenting their education journeys, whatever that journey happens to be? And, you know, what tools do you use? What's, what's the value of that documentation itself as you go along mm. through your journey? I actually journal a lot and not just writing, but sometimes because I'm always in situations where there might not be even a, you know, the wind is so high you can't record so <laughs> or record thoughts in with a pen and paper. So I use my phone to just record audios. And actually, currently right now, I'm working on my memoir based off of those journal writings and recordings and random thoughts that I had because, you know, they come as thoughts, but then what's the lessons, you know, what are the learnings? And so the entire book is based off memories and lessons that I've learned. And I'm also working on a, a TV show where most of the script is from the learnings that, because I also, given that I have really bad memory, mm -hmm. <laughs> just from all these journeys so in the Himalayas. So, yeah. um, and then I would often call up friends who saw me during certain times in my life because mm -hmm. we, it's, 
you know, we tend to think from our own perspective, it's always, I'm very open to seeking out, not just friends, even if people hate me, like get their perspective of what they thought of me or whatever situation I was in. Um, and I think in education, I think that's really important to get other external perspective. Um, mm-hmm. Because are you, if Pe- are you, people are the repository of memory. Right. And orbital yeah. perspective, which is a term used by astronauts very often, is like the view from the top, right? Mm-hmm. Because we get so caught up in our own journeys that we can't we lose sight of objective thinking right and so so oftentimes in our meditation we also have this visualization we visualize a lot in train so when i say meditation it's not just like meditation there's a lot of you know recitations ex- um exercises and a lot of it is based on visualization and say for example we're sitting here in this booth and then just go above like just imagine yourself going up and you know with, it comes with long-term practices, like really seeing yourself from an orbital perspective, mm-hmm. from an, how an astronaut would view. And then you'll see that how we're all so interdependent. Mm. And we, I feel like we lose that side when we're so caught up in our own, just mm-hmm. thinking in our own mind. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Totally. Yeah, I've I've had many examples where I've pulled up to that yeah. ten thousand foot level, <laughs> and just looked down and tried to examine yeah. the ecosystem that right. I'm operating in, in yeah. that moment. And I'm also struck by what you say that, you know, journaling is one thing. You could be blogging. Mm. You, mm. There's many many mm. tools that you can use to record your thoughts, but one of those tools is actually sharing with people right. what you've been through, and they become a repository in a right. way that you can reach back to later if you're mm. going to be working on something that requires that memory. Mm. And it sounds like you're doing that. In the last couple of years, because I'm, you know, I'm in a place in life where I'm making, I'm doing a lot of storytelling and I want to be able to say, you know, say it from an authentic place. So um, a lot of my friends have helped me. I would just get on a call, set up a call and just have those conversations. And even if it's difficult, like how they perceived my growth at that level where I was stuck. And I learned a lot about myself. And Mm. Not everyone is, and it's, even for me, it's difficult sometimes. It's not an easy process. Uh, right. But it must be really fun to be yeah. working on this TV show. Yeah. And that in a way, your memories of what's happened over the climbs to the seven summits, it shifts in some way as you reinteract with your journals mm. and with the ways that you've recorded memory and with the people who are with you. It is very therapeutic and um, also, so I, just for the record, I finished in 2015 and since then I've been doing other mountains and stuff. But during the seven summits, there was a different kind of spotlight on me like because I was doing it for Bangladesh's 40 years of right. women's progress and all that. So there was a lot of expectations, right? And so there's a whole shift in when I go to the mountains now. No one's looking. So I'm like on my own having a different kind of freedom in mm. my mind where I don't have to face a whole bunch of media when I come down or, you know, so um, oh, only in the last two, three years and now that I've moved location I've based myself mostly out of LA, I'm, I have the space and perspective to re- re- like just get a different perspective and not just the seven seven but just my entire life and so these storytelling projects, whether it's TV or book writing, it's been very therapeutic and I'm be- finally being able to look back even my childhood from a cold, different, pers- a fresh perspective, mm-hmm. 
Because when I'm in Bangladesh, it's just, we have 170 million people. <laughs> so it's like literally there is no space. And when you're someone in the public eye, it's just your brain's not or mind's not functioning from a very authentic self that serves you mm. or yourself, if that makes sense. So, yeah, it does. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. Hey, everybody. We're going to split this episode into two parts. So stay with us. This is the end of part one, and we'll be back with part two very shortly. Mm-hmm.